This is How We See It, a look at issues that impact our faith and community. For the next few minutes, we'll explore topics with people who are making a difference in our world. This is How We See It. I'm Deacon Mike Sweeney, and our guest is Deacon Rick Wells, who is the Chancellor for Canonical Affairs. As Chancellor, you are an advisor to Bishop Parks. Can you tell us about some of the things that you might advise the bishop on? As part of his executive team, each day at lunch, we have an opportunity to meet with the bishop to discuss some more pertinent issues. If it's a concern maybe about priest personnel, I might meet with him individually or perhaps along with our Vicar General Monsignor Morris or others who need to be part of that conversation. So that may be one issue. Perhaps even some questions about the health of parishes or schools, any number of different issues, just to kind of go around the table with our executive team to say what seems to be the best way going forward to handle that. And to Bishop Park's credit, I would say he is incredibly collegial. He values the input from the team. And at the end of the day, realizing that the decision is his to make, at least he's done so in a way that's informed. So uh, I give him so much credit for that, and I so appreciate the opportunity to work with him. You also serve as the notary. Is it like a private personal notary for the bishop, or is that more for official church documents? The job of chancellor can be defined as secretary, notary, and archivist. So being a notary, and really an ecclesiastical notary, on behalf of the church, that would be my position. That goes along with being a chancellor. So what I would do would be to verify documents anytime there is an appointment letter for a priest or a deacon, anytime there is a letter relieving somebody of their position, anytime we have a priest coming in and uh, we're extending faculties for ministry. Maybe he doesn't have a position in one of our parishes and schools, but he's here He's been cleared through our diocese, so he's able to help provide ministry. Then my signature goes as a notarization of that document. So it's just to verify that it was, in fact, valid and then is kept on file in our archives. You started to mention before you have an outside priest or deacon or even a layperson presenter. Mm -hmm. They are not allowed to just come into the diocese and start preaching at a church. That's right. So what we do is uh, there is a process when we have a priest or a deacon who's coming into the diocese that wants to perform ministry. The first thing would be the request needs to come from the parish where he would provide ministry. And then what our office does is to send a request to his diocese or religious community just to make sure that he is, in fact, in good standing. And then once we have verification of that, we do provide the faculties for ministry. If it's up to one month, we can simply do it based on the letter of good standing. If he's here for a longer period of time, then according to our safe environment policy, he also needs to go through the background screening and safe environment training. And that's through the FBI? Yes. So the background screening is both through the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the FBI. So how did it work for somebody like me? I'm from New York. Mm -hmm. I came down, I received, eventually I received faculties to perform baptisms and weddings and whatnot. But I am not, and here's a big fancy church term, I am not incarnated into the diocese. How would it work for somebody like me to actually be incarnated and officially become a part of the diocese? The word incarnation, a lot of times we'll throw around churchy terms and people might say, I don't quite get that. But really comes from the Latin word cardo, which means hinge. 
so to be attached to a particular diocese or a religious community. In the case of a deacon who is not incarnated in St. Petersburg, is not one of our deacons, but maybe belongs to another diocese, he can come here for ministry. Typically, we don't incarnate deacons into this diocese unless, for some reason, they might have an official assignment with the diocese, and there's no intent of them going back to their home diocese. It's happened. It's kind of rare. But for the most part, we'll have men that will come down here that for many years will still be incarnated in their home diocese. I think we have one who's been here since the late 80s, still incarnated in Boston, although his intent is to stay here for the rest of his life. Now, when it comes to the archives, the church is actually one of the greatest keeper of records since the dawn of mankind. We have archives dating back to the beginning of the church. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what you do as the chancellor to handle all of the archives of the church? Right. And in the church's law, which we refer to as canon law, it goes into detail about the responsibility of the chancellor to oversee the acts of the curia, or the documents, the official documentation of the bishop and other diocesan offices. So uh, my job actually is overseeing our Office of the Archives and uh, Records. So I supervise Lisa Mobley, who is our diocesan archivist, and she's just been a delight to work with, very, very knowledgeable in that area. So she will make sure firsthand that documents are saved appropriately and retained for the period in which they are retained. Now, not all need to be kept permanently. So we have what's known as a schedule for retaining documents. Those that are scheduled to be destroyed, then we would destroy them. And there's really a logic in doing that, too, because at some point you would just run out of space otherwise. So my role is just to make sure that things are being done correctly as far as that goes and that documents are destroyed in a timely manner or kept permanently if they're to be kept permanently. We're talking with Deacon Rick Wells, the Chancellor of the Diocese. How does it work? Does the bishop, anytime he writes a little memo, does that have to be archived, like kind of like the president of the United States? Right. In cases where it's just a note to his secretary to remember something or, you know, a note to our um, office of internal services to make sure that he gets his oil changed on his uh, vehicle or whatever, then of course not. But there would be those that would need to be kept permanently. Of course, any homilies, any texts from homilies, any uh, articles that he has written, things of that nature would be kept permanently. Anything that would go in a priest's file as far as uh, a letter of appointment or a letter of uh, removal or relief, that, of course, would go in his permanent file as well. Are those files kept electronically, or is it actually paper copies? We do keep paper copies, so that's really the original. We do have a number of documents that we would keep electronically as well. With personnel files, we don't do that. We want to make sure that that's not discoverable. We do have some older files that we've had to do that as a backup in case those become lost. I would imagine you might be a little bit scared of storing things electronically, too, because that could be lost. Right, right. So that's something we have to be very cautious of or something that would maybe fall into the wrong hands. We want to make sure if it's kept electronically that it's done so in a way where it is safe. Do you have to save the archives of even parish things like blueprints and bulletins, things like that? Right. So for each of our various diocesan offices, they would have documents that need to be kept either for a certain number of years or permanently. So when it comes to blueprints on parish buildings, 
we would keep those in our archives for our construction office. Also, parishes, when they have their historical archives, and we encourage all parishes and schools to do that, to keep that information. One thing that Lisa and I often do is to provide assistance to our parishes and schools and to even give workshops, just telling them about what is appropriate in terms of maintaining records, destroying records, keeping an eye on that retention schedule, knowing when to keep, when to destroy, and how to do that appropriately so that nothing should fall into the wrong hands. And also just little things like keeping an inventory of parish goods, of school items, and so forth for insurance purposes. You talked a bit before about people coming into the diocese, clergy and lay people. Why the restrictions? If you're a parish, say, in the diocese and you want to bring in a lay presenter, can you talk a little bit about why there are restrictions and why we would need to go through your office? It's important that we know that the person is considered suitable to be able to speak, and we're talking strictly on matters of faith and morals. So if somebody wants to come and give a talk at a school on math, our office is not going to clear them. That would really be the discretion of the principal or the administrator that the principal has entrusted with overseeing that. But our office, if it's a matter of faith and morals, if somebody is coming to give a retreat for a youth group or to give a talk to a woman's group at a parish, then we want to make sure, on the matter of faith and morals, we want to make sure that that person is considered suitable to do that. And whether they're coming from outside of the diocese or maybe even another parish or school, maybe that inviting parish does not know that individual. We'd want to make sure that at least the pastor gives a statement of recommendation for that person. And then we would have a certificate stating that they are in good standing to be able to do what they've been asked to do. What would you do in the case of somebody that wants to give a talk on faith and morals but has no experience? And that does happen. And what I recommend, and I actually had somebody come to me a few months ago on this. I said, start in your parish, talk to your pastor, ask what you might be able to do maybe on a small scale, perhaps for a small prayer group at the parish if the pastor feels comfortable with that maybe to have somebody sort of mentor them in the process, and then as they become a little bit more capable, a little bit more comfortable, can branch out more in the parish, and then perhaps uh, to other parishes if requested. But they might not be able to present here in the diocese if they don't have the experience. Right. Well, we certainly don't want somebody to say, well, you know, I think I'm okay to speak on this, and the pastor might say they don't know the first thing about catechetics or about whatever. The church has policies in place for when vacancies happen at a parish or in the diocese. Can you walk us through some of what takes place when there are vacancies, either on the parish level or even in the bishop's office? So we'll start with, in the case of a parish, when there's a vacancy, and it has happened, doesn't happen that often, but let's say if a pastor should for some reason die suddenly, or for some reason the pastor has to be removed for some reason, that vacancy is there, there would be another priest who would be put in place as a temporary administrator of the parish. So it doesn't have that stability that goes with the office of pastor, but would be there at least on a temporary basis. Usually when it's something that happens immediately, and if the parish has an associate or what we call a parochial vicar, then that priest would step up into that role unless and until somebody else is put in that position. So they would be a temporary parish administrator. When it comes to a bishop, if the bishop should die suddenly, usually that information is shared with the archbishop. 
Archbishop of Miami, in our case, overseeing the Diocese of Florida, or the province of Miami, as it's called. That announcement would be made, would then be shared with Rome. And what happens also is that we have a group of priests known as the College of Consultors, which in our diocese, we have seven priests that make up this group. And uh, what they would do would be to meet to determine who would step in as an administrator or what we call a diocesan administrator in the absence of a bishop. The diocese would be considered vacant. We have no diocesan bishop. And when that happens, there are a number of positions that really become vacant. When there's no bishop, there's no vicar general, no second in command, so to speak. And then uh, when the new bishop comes in, he could either reappoint the previous vicar general or appoint somebody entirely differently. It's totally his discretion. How about chancellor? The chancellor continues, and actually so would the judicial vicar, the uh, priest who would be in charge of the tribunal. So those offices need to continue running in the absence of a bishop. And then it would be up to the incoming bishop to determine if he would want to keep them or to relieve them and have somebody new in those positions. As the chancellor, and you said before that you meet daily with the bishop, Mm -hmm. can you give us the overall state of the diocese? Give us some stats. Have we bounced back from COVID? How are church attendances looking these days? Just from my conversation with others outside the state of Florida, I would say that uh, we're really on a good path. And I know that uh, we were shut down for a period of about 10 weeks back in 2020. And attendance was slow to creep back. One part of what my office does, too, is to send out a request for an average of mass attendance for weekends in October and February. So comparing year to year to year, what we've noticed was in 2021, after COVID had struck, so about a year after, we noticed there was about a 50% attendance rate based on pre-COVID numbers. That went up to about 70% the following year, and it's gone up ever since. So we're on a good path. Some parishes have even reported doing much better, being much stronger than they were pre-COVID. A number are saying it really hit us pretty hard, especially with an elderly population. So we're a little bit slow to creep back to even close to what we were prior to the pandemic. We're talking with Deacon Rick Wells, the Chancellor for the Diocese of St. Petersburg. I know at St. Stephen in Riverview, prior to covid we were bursting from the seams at certain masses. Now, we are not bursting from the seams for the most part, but most of our masses are full again. So it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and we've seen that in my parish too. I'm at uh, St. Catherine of Siena in Clearwater, and we've noticed the numbers uh, coming back, not necessarily where they were pre-COVID, but uh, little by little, we're finding new families coming in. And what hit us too is because we have a fairly sizable seasonal population. So a number of Canadian residents who that first year did not come back. So that hit us pretty hard. We've noticed now that that's changed and a lot of our northern visitors are back. So uh, getting a little bit closer to pre-COVID numbers. Your position is actually one that is required according to canon law. Yes. As an aside, I attended a scripture study recently with Deacon Rick and it was on St. Matthew. And at one point you whipped out your canon law book So out of curiosity, do you bring that everywhere you go? I don't. In fact, I understand it sometimes scares people away. So 
I don't do that. Actually, I was giving a talk that day. I had to step out of that workshop because I had to speak to a group of parish business managers. I was referencing a couple of areas of church law, and uh, that's why the book was with me. And the instructor kind of called that out, too. But I said, well, had to kind of wear two hats that day. So you're not walking around the mall with your canon law book? No, (laughs) no. Okay. Now, many people don't realize that the church is actually divided geographically, kind of like our nation is. We have states and we have counties and towns and whatnot. Well, the church has the diocese and then deaneries as well. Do you get into the forming of lines to designate where deaneries are and who leads the vicariate? Now, I, as far as determining that, I don't make those decisions. Ultimately, that would come from the bishop. There would be recommendations that would be made. I know that that question has come up over the years from among the priests, if maybe we should look at the current, what they call the deanery structure. In the Diocese of St. Petersburg, we have nine deaneries or vicariates. And simply what that means is just smaller geographical regions within the diocese where the priests can meet several times a year just to support one another, to keep up on news of what's happening both in the diocese and in their local area. So one of our deaneries actually encompasses the entirety of Citrus County. So the six parishes in Citrus County, the pastors and the other priests there would meet and discuss information that's going on within their communities also any deanery initiatives that they might have, anything that's happening with St. John Paul II School in Lacanto, and also if the dean has anything to share from the most recent Presbyteral Council meeting or the Council of Priests, and we have about 27 priests who make up that group from around the diocese. In January of 2021, responsibilities for the propagation of the faith were designated to your office. This is a missionary arm of the church from the Vatican. Correct. Can you share with us some of the work that that society does and what your role is in that? Right. So as far as the propagation of the faith, what previously, before my office overtook responsibility of that, the secretary who worked in that office would work to help establish the annual missionary cooperation plan. So which mission groups from around the world would be admitted that year? There were several who um, went into the decision-making process with that. And then once that was determined who the recipients would be, then they would be paired up with different parishes. That happens every year. Actually, the missionary cooperation plan has been in existence in the United States since the 1930s. And it's an opportunity to not only assist our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, but even for them to promote vocations within their communities. And also for us to have a better idea of understanding that the church is not just simply my parish or my diocese, but it's the universal church. So I think that those experiences are very educational. So our office helps to determine the recipient entities. And unfortunately, we get so many applications that We have to say no this year to usually 80% or more of them. But for those that are accepted, each of them is allotted two parishes in which they can go and make appeals. We usually do that during the summer and early fall months. And then those funds, 100% of those funds, are sent to the diocese, and then a check or a wire transfer is sent to the diocese or religious community 
that is here for mission appeals. So really that allows a local parishioner, if they contribute to the Catholic ministry appeal, a local parishioner is making contributions indirectly to missionaries around the world. Well, in a sense, yes, because uh, the missionary cooperation plan is actually different from that. The Catholic Ministry Appeal, among other things, helps to promote or to support the offices within the pastoral center and throughout the diocese. So that would include my office and the work we do with the missionary cooperation plan. However, the funds come from the collections taken in the parishes. And those funds are sent to us, and then what we do is make sure that that is transmitted to the home diocese or religious community. Is it a second collection? That's typically done through a special collection, yes. Usually on the day of the appeal, that would be a special collection for that. There are some pastors who decide to maybe just give a percentage of the collection that weekend just to make it simpler, but most of them will have that second collection. What is a typical day for you? Are you in meetings from sunup to sundown? And do you have any idea how many meetings per year you attend? That question you just asked me, I have to chuckle about it because one of my nephews asked me that one time, what is a typical day for you like? And I said, if I ever have one, I'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) But no, fortunately, I don't have meetings from beginning to end, although depending on the day, there may be a greater need for that. Typical day, I, I do have quite a bit of correspondence that comes through, as well as ongoing projects, depending on the time of year, too, and what needs to be done. And certainly things do come up. A lot of times our office receives questions either from other pastoral center offices, if it is a matter of the care of our priests. Sometimes we'll get complaints coming from parishes or schools, and we want to make sure those are routed appropriately. Wearing a lot of different hats, and I can say that I'm very blessed. I don't have to do it on my own. I have a wonderful secretary, Maria Gonzalez, who has been my secretary for the last six years and has worked in the pastoral center for over 21 years. As I mentioned, Lisa Mobley before in archives. And then a part of what I do also, Mike, is since last year, I've uh, had oversight of our safe environment office as well. I don't work firsthand with safe environment matters, but I do oversee uh, Michael Craig and Kim Sabara in that office. So if there's ever a need for support or assistance, I can always provide that to them. Our office, as far as that goes too, assists in the preparation for the annual charter audit or the USCCB charter audit. USCCB charter is the charter for the protection of children and young people. So every year, every diocese throughout the United States has to go through some type of audit process. And there is an independent auditing firm that will come to make sure that we're in compliance with what the USCCB requires as far as keeping our young people and our vulnerable population safe. Tell us your path. Now, what came first, you as a lawyer or you as a deacon? Would be as a deacon, actually. Really? The Canada Law part came much later. Actually, my background is in education. My degree, many, many years ago, I tell people it was like a whole nother lifetime, but I actually started out as a music teacher. So my undergrad was in music education. Eventually, I found an interest in counseling, had a master's in counselor education. Once I got involved in parish work, I also was discerning a call to the diaconate and was ordained with 19 of my classmates in 1997. So really, the the canon law part of it didn't come for probably about 10 years later when I was asked if I was interested in possibly studying for a degree in canon law. And at that time, that seemed to be a good path, so I did pursue that. 
And both my wife Barbara and I traveled to Ottawa, Ontario, where I studied at St. Paul University and then received my license in Canada law in 2009. Wow. How long did that take? It was uh, just over two years. Wow. So what is your favorite part about being chancellor? I would say when it comes to just helping parish staff members who call with any number of different odd questions, sometimes they might feel that they're in over their head, not sure how to handle a particular issue, whether it's on sacraments, whether it might have to do with sacramental records or any other type of records or just a a personnel issue. Also, sometimes we get the random calls where somebody is just looking for a parish where maybe they can begin the process for marriage preparation or baptism. We occasionally get calls from people that say, I'm new here. I don't know the area at all. I'd like to be able to connect with a parish. So to be able to do that, to me, is always a delight. And just to get to affirm some people, too, and their journey. All right. You answered your favorite part. What's your least favorite part? The least favorite part, I would say is when there is a complaint of any type of misconduct, even financial, too. Whenever we get those calls, it's never pleasant. And and actually, speaking of that, not to get too far off topic, but I was on the Diocesan Review Board for a period of about four years, back a few years back. And just the work that that involves in sitting and listening to somebody who comes forward with a complaint of sexual misconduct on behalf of church personnel, usually priests, to hear that and to hear the pain that comes through that, I would say by far that's my least favorite. Please tell me that things have gotten better. Immensely. Very, very much. And I know that a lot of that is because of all the efforts that have been made ever since the USCCB Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People came out in 2002. It was the following year where dioceses jumped on board very quickly to establish safe environment offices, to establish the training, and also the fingerprinting and background screening. I remember actually kind of being on the ground floor of that. I was working in a parish at the time and being part of a group of individuals who were being trained as trainers so we could go back to our parishes and help to train volunteers and staff members. Can I give you some rapid-fire questions? I'll do my best. All right. Away we go. Favorite book of the Bible? The Letter of James. Why? I just love I think it's very simple, very practical. I often remind myself one quote from that book, too, to be uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Can't say I'm always successful with that, but we're trying. I already killed the whole rapid-fire response thing with my (laughs) follow-up, but that's okay. Uh, (laughs) If you had to live in another country, what would it be? I love Canada. What's your favorite season? Fall. So it's not summers in Florida? No, I mean, it's something. I've been here 37 years, so I've gotten accustomed to it, but uh, definitely love the fall when it starts to cool down a bit. What is the scariest moment of your life? It probably has to do with driving, I would say, for sure. And I know one time driving to Orlando, seeing a car immediately behind me, trying to cut across three lanes of traffic, going sideways, getting hit by another car and spinning around. And I'm looking through my rear view and then thinking, I better be looking ahead. Mm. So that was one that shook me up. What do you do on your days off? Oh, days off. Do you take days off? (laughs) I try to. Usually that ends up being Saturday unless there are meetings or other activities going on or something with the diaconate office. I actually like to do a lot of DIY stuff. I love cycling. I love walking. And my wife and I do some gardening as well. But a lot of times that's when those DIY projects that get put on the pile are kind of uncovered. And 
I try to do at least one if I can. You strike me as a man that can dance. <laughs> it has been probably about 30 years. My wife and I were into uh, country line dancing. We used to absolutely love it, but been pretty rusty at it, and I think I gave my boots away. So Nice. I kind of nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> you did. Good job. So I have two more questions for you. Okay. First one might take a little longer. What do you do for your parish, and then how can somebody get in contact with you? But the parish, um, my role is actually overseeing the uh, parish liturgy committee and coordinating with the different liturgical ministries. So I certainly enjoy doing that. And I can say that uh, it's been easy for me because those that are heads of the different liturgical ministries at St. Catherine's, we have people that have been doing what they're doing for so many years that could do it blindfolded. So I'm very blessed to be able to work with some great people there. As far as getting in contact with me, the pastoral center number, 727-344-1611. Just ask for me, and if I'm not in the office, I will return your call. Do you have the Code of Canon Law with you? I do not, although I can find it on my phone if you want. <laughs> so you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Deacon Rick Wells, Chancellor of the Diocese of St. Petersburg, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Can I have one more comment? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, canon law. One thing I would want to quote, too, um, I, I don't have it all memorized or even part of it, but I would say that it's the very last canon, canon 1752, that reminds us that the salvation of souls must always be held as the greatest law of the church. So we always need to keep in the front of our minds the salvation of souls. What decisions I make, what I do, what I say, am I concerned about the salvation of my fellow brother or sister? And sometimes that means you have to tell them what they don't want to hear. That's correct. Our guest today is Deacon Rick Wells, Chancellor for the Diocese of St. Petersburg. And this is How We See It. Thanks for listening to today's program. This presentation and others like it are made possible by supporters like you. If you'd like a copy of today's program, make comments or suggestions, and to help us keep this important programming on the air, visit myspiritfm.com slash howwesee it. Mm-hmm.